And I'm going to read uh, first, before we read our text this morning, I'm going to read from Psalm 110, and then I will go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 4, which is where our text is taken from this morning. Psalm 110 says, and this is a Psalm of David, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of, of your strength out of Zion, your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews chapter 4. And this is where our text is taken from. I'll start reading from verse 11 through, and read through verse 16. But our text this morning is going to be 14, 15, and 16. Let us then, be, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray again. O merciful Father, we give you thanks for your kindness. We give you thanks for grace that you have given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see the beauty of Christ, our High Priest, that you would, by your Spirit, tear down any divisions, any walls that are in our hearts that are causing us to not hear your Word preached. Guard us from the evil one, we pray, and feed and satisfy our souls. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, taking advantage of this holiday season, as our culture is superficially thinking about Christ, my aim in this series, as we look at Hebrews, as we look at Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king, my aim in this series is to deepen your communion with the Lord as we look to the Son of God in his three offices. Last week what we did was we looked at the role of Christ as our prophet, and some of the things that we said last week was that God has decisively spoken in real time and in real space. That God has spoken in this world that he has created. And he's spoken in various times and in various ways, according to Hebrews 1, through 
plenty of ways, but in these last days when Christ was revealed, he has spoken decisively to us through his Son. This morning, we'll be looking at the second office. Last week we spoke about his office as prophet. This week, we will look at his office as our great high priest. Our confession tells us in chapter 8 that it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. And he is the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and justified, and glorified. Now there's a lot to say about Christ as our priest, and I don't, we're not going to get into all of the details about Christ our priest because we'd be here forever. But this morning what I want to do is I want to give you a taste, a flavor of Christ as our high priest, according to the author of Hebrews, so that in Christ you would have confidence to come to God because Christ has demonstrated his supremacy as our great high priest. And that's really the foundation of our text when we look at verse 16, which we'll get to today. The foundation for us coming to God is the fact that Christ has demonstrated the fact that he is a supreme and great high priest for his people. And so as we look at our text this morning, there are three things that I'd like for us to look at. The first is the supremacy of Christ as our superior high priest. And that's in four, verse 14. Then we move to verse 15, where we will see the supremacy of Christ as our sympathetic high, high priest. The supremacy of Christ as our sympathetic high priest. And the last thing that we'll see is the supremacy of Christ as our strengthening high priest. So we go from superiority to sympathetic to strengthening high priest. And we'll look at that in their turn. But just a few words about the role of the high priest. What was the high priest and what did he do? The first mention of the high priest or the priesthood is found in places like Genesis 14 where we get a look at Melchizedek who is both king and priest who comes to Abraham after Abraham is engaged in a battle. He wins and Melchizedek is, uh, is there and Abraham offers sacrifices. But then we fast forward a little bit to the Pentateuch, where the, the rest of the Pentateuch, where we see Aaron, Moses' brother, becoming high priest and installed as high priest in texts like Exodus 29. This office, unlike the office of the prophet, was by hereditary. In other words, if your father was the high priest, chances are 99.9999%, unless you did something wrong and crazy, you were going to be the next high priest. And this is how it worked. This is how God established the high priestly order. And you came to be a high priest through anointing as well. So you were anointed with oil, set apart, consecrated to be a high priest, a mediator between God and his people. 
texts like Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 16 tell us that there is an immense weight put on to this office. In other words, nobody, absolutely nobody can apply for this job and say, I want that job. You had to be in that ironic line, ironic being a son of Aaron. Why did the high priest exist? Why did that office exist? Why did God set this up? Was this just something that God wanted to design for himself and just thought it was cool to have people wearing linen and jewels along their chest and a hat? No. The reason why this office exists is because there is sin in this world. You look around the world today, you turn on the news, you listen to social media, and what you will find is that the only explanation for what is going on in this world and what's going on in here is the fact that there is sin in this world. And the only way that there can be any sort of reconciliation between God and his people is if there is a mediator mediating between God and man. And this is nothing new. Because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, what we have is the entrance of sin into this world. Adam, who was created in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness, went against his own nature and he sinned against the Lord. And if you remember, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, what you have in chapter 3 verse 24 is God stationing an angel with a flaming sword at the gate of the Garden of Eden so that no one can pass through. And the question that comes up, the question that comes up inevitably in every single book of the Bible until we get to Matthew, is how will we get back to the Lord? How can we get right with the Lord? How in the world can we get back into the garden? How can we have that face-to-face -face communion with God once again that we lost? And through the priesthood, the Lord makes a way. Because of sin, the relationship that was between God and man was permanently altered. And if you're asking that question, what is man's biggest problem today? The answer, again, is sin. There is no amount of therapy. There are, there are no amount of pharmaceutical prescriptions. There is no amount of education that you can do to resolve the problem of sin. One senator was asked uh, last year, how do you deal with crime in this country? And her answer is, it's because we need more education. As if education is the remedy to the issue of sin. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because the most sophisticated people on this planet were the most murderous people on this planet. And what they did was they took their sophistication and in sophisticated ways they sinned against other people. So, how do we deal with the problem of sin? And that is where the role of the high priest comes in. The role of the high priest is different from the rest of the priests because only the high priest can enter into the Holy of Holies. 
The tabernacle that God had instructed Moses to set up, where he would be worshipped, was divided into three. And then subsequently, the temple was also divided into three. You had the common place, you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And only the high priest was able to enter into the, mo the holy of holies once a year to make atonement for sins. And you'll see the Jewish people in our area, in our neighborhood, celebrating Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, once a year, every September, to celebrate the atonement of sins, except they have not the Messiah. They haven't seen or, or, or understood that Christ has already come. Just to show how delicate and how immensely weighty this office is, you have an incident that happens in Leviticus 10 where Aaron's sons go into the Holy of Holies and some scholars say that they went into the Holy of Holies drunk with wine and the Lord struck them down. Imagine, you watch the Lord as He strikes down your children for being disobedient. And what does God say? I will be regarded as holy before everyone. So the, the role of the high priest was to make atonement for the sins of God's people passing through the veil that was dividing between the people and or the priests and everyone else and the holiest place of all. The preacher of Hebrews, because this letter is not just a letter, the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. The preacher of this letter sends hundreds and hundreds of warnings and encouragements, but his focus is to show you the supremacy of Christ's priesthood. So that from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where you see that God has decisively spoken, and not only has He decisively spoken, but He made atonement for sins. This Christ, He aims to show you that this is the one that you are to worship. That this is the one that you are to give all of your attention to, all of your life to. No looking to the right, no looking to the left, but looking directly at Christ. And he's writing to Jews. But more than that, the Spirit now is calling you to pay attention. Because he's not just a high priest for the Jews only. He's a high priest for you. So let's look at our text. That, by way of introduction, um, introduces us to verse 14. Verse 14 this comes at the end or a transitional point where the author is going from giving them an example of a promised rest in Joshua now to a fuller description of the priesthood. And he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." When we look at verse 14, there are some words, if you're, if you're a Jew and you're reading this, some words should pop up like light bulbs in your head because now you're seeing things that you would have normally seen Moses do. What do we have? First of all, he describes, he says four things about our Lord. He calls him great. He calls him a high priest. He says that he has passed through the heavens and he calls him Jesus, the Son of God. Why is he great? 
And why is he a great high priest? Well, the answer lies in what he says after the words high priest. He has passed through the heavens. When Moses went, into, uh, went to speak with the Lord, the way the tabernacle was set up and structured was that there was one veil, an entrance into the tabernacle, that was blue and scarlet and purple, representing the skies. And then there was a second veil, a thicker veil, where the priest had to go through in order to get into the Holy of Holies. And the idea is that God came down in His glory to speak with Moses face to face. But as Moses went through the veil, you saw him no more. Obviously. It wasn't a transparent veil. It was a thick veil. And the reason why that's important is because when this author tells us that Jesus has passed through the heavens, this is meant for us to say, wait a minute, we know that phrase. We've seen that phrase before. Moses went into the veil to speak face to face with God, but this high priest has not just gone through any veil. That veil has been torn. He has gone through the veil of the heavens. So if you look up at the nighttime sky, you turn off all of the lights here on the streets, no light pollution whatsoever from the city, and you look up at the stars of the sky, you have the heavens right above you. But as if to say that wasn't enough, Jesus passed through the heavens and went into the very heaven of heavens, the throne of God, the place where God dwells, where unlike Moses who had to go through the tabernacle and then at some point had to offer sins for him or sacrifices for his own sins, Jesus himself has gone into the very presence of God, now to see God face to face as it were, his father face to face. For us, for you, he's passed through the heavens. And this is what makes this high priest so great. All of the high priests that were in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, had a lifespan, and then they were gone. And then their sons took over. But who's going to take over for the Lord Jesus Christ? No one. <laughs> he rose from the dead. One of the things that you see constantly throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is this longing, this longing for sins to be dealt with. This longing for this separation between God and man to somehow be reconciled. And there's a plea, please God, please God, do something. And so what does God do in Micah chapter 7? Micah is a play on words. Because it means, who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? Micah chapter 7, Micah asks the question, Who is a God like you? This is how Micah closes. Who is a God like you? And if anyone is remembering from Exodus chapter 15, Moses said the same exact thing. After the Lord split the Red Sea, now he says, now Micah says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. If you have your pens, if you have your pencils, and you want to know what God is like, write this down. He delights in mercy. 
This kind of mercy is a steadfast covenant love for his people. He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue or literally take captive our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy, there's that word again, to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. And we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, where God spoke in various times and in various ways to our fathers through the prophets. What does that mean for you? 2023, welcome. On the brink of 2024. What does that mean for you? That God has not only decisively spoken and that you need to pay attention, but God has finally dealt with the one issue that man could never do. And this is not the sins of the person right across the street, not the sins of the person that you're going to meet tomorrow for Christmas Eve dinner or Christmas dinner or whatever it is. God has dealt with your sins. You are the reason why Christ is on the cross. I am the reason why Christ was nailed to the cross. My sins put him there. And God has dealt with the sins through our great high priest who has decisively passed into the heavens and spoken in real time and real space. So what do you do? Mr. Preacher from Hebrews, or writing to the Hebrews, what should I do? He says, hold fast to your confession. He says, let us hold fast our confession. What is that confession? Is it the Nicene Creed, which we just recited? That's part of it. But what is that confession? That confession is the acknowledgement that Christ is your God. That you tell the world that my God reigns. When Jesus says, anyone who denies me, I will publicly deny him when I come in my glory. But anyone who acknowledges me, I will openly acknowledge him before my Father and the angels when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Are you denying him? Are you denying him today? Are you denying him tomorrow as you think about the situations where you will be in, where people who don't know Christ snicker at the fact that you are a Christian? All of the times where you, would, where you withheld your tongue from telling your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters, your family members that you are a Christian, will you hold fast to your confession today or will you deny him? You can't deny him. He is your great high priest. But not only do we have a superior high priest, but we have a sympathetic high priest. This doesn't mean that Jesus is in the corner with a little cat in his arms, so emotional and crying all the, all the time. This doesn't mean that Jesus is some sort of wimp. What this does mean is exactly what our, our, our preacher tells us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we go from the superiority of our high priest now to our sympathetic high priest where our preacher 
begins with a negative. And sometimes, we, in order for us to see clearly what we're looking at, we need to hold it up against the backdrop of the blackness, the negative, the darkness, so that we can see our Savior shining more brightly. What is the brightness of our Savior? What kind of high priest are you and I dealing with here? Well, it seems to me that this high priest that this preacher is speaking about is so otherworldly that he cannot possibly identify with me. In fact, I've never seen anyone go into the heavens. How can he possibly? He's in a category all by himself. How can he possibly identify with me? Can he possibly sympathize with us? Well, the preacher tells us, yes, he can sympathize with you. Why? Because at every point, in every aspect, Jesus was assaulted on every side. He was harassed, the devil came after him, and all that he had and could do could not gain any ground on Jesus. In fact, we we're going through Matthew's Gospel at the Haven, and one of the things that we see is about 24 times you see all of the assaults coming at Jesus from all different sides. People trying to entrap him in his words. People trying to bribe him. People trying to kill him and murder him. Premeditated murder all over the pages of Matthew, all throughout the Gospels. Everyone's trying to get Jesus. Some are praising him. Some are blaspheming him. Blaspheming him. Some are trying to push him off of the cliff. Some are trying to entrap him in his own words. And then his best friend, one of his closest friends, betrays him. And not once, not once, does he cave to sin. You know, there are times when people sin against you. There are times when you feel sick or you're feeling tired or you're feeling hungry and the impulse that rises in you is to sin whether you realize it or acknowledge it or not against other people and pass it off as I'm just hangry <laughs> or I'm just not feeling well today leave me alone it's amazing when you get sick or when you're tired, suddenly everyone else in this life that you once had patience with suddenly does not meet your standards of patience, of love, of respect. Now Jesus did not deal with internal sin. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh, true. But he did not have lusts warring in his own heart. In fact, his nature was more like Adam's, who was created, as I said, in true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Christ had a, sin, a, 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 a fleshly nature, but he was not sinful, right? But all of the opportunities came to him to go against his own nature and to sin. The devil comes to him and says, use your right as the Son of God to feed yourself. You fasted for 40 days, you are hungry. Even the Gospel writer says, you're hungry, so eat. Turn the stones into bread. And the Lord doesn't, get any, doesn't use his power to turn stones into bread. He doesn't use his divine rights to feed himself. 
But instead, he later says, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Jesus was tired and he fell asleep. And his disciples woke him up. But not once did he get embittered by them or at them. Jesus was publicly mocked. He was put on the cross. Do you think that if you were put on a cross by your own friends, that there would be a temptation rising in you to lash out against them and say, I deserve to be down there and not up here? Well, Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. He was tempted in all points, assaulted from every side, so that the blackness of arrows coming in from every side to pierce him through with temptations, with trials, did not cause him to cave. Well, we rewind and we look at Adam. Adam saw what was going on in the garden. He remembered God's word. He saw the serpent. He saw his wife. And he should have offered his own life for her. But instead, he goes against his nature. And this is what makes his sin so heinous, so bad. Because he did not have the impulse to sin, and yet he goes against the nature that God created. And we look at Jesus, assaulted on every side, living for 33 years, 12,045 days. I did the calculation. 12,045 days, a rough estimate of how long Jesus spent on this earth. And every single day he was assaulted. And yet, without sin. This is amazing. One of the reasons why we're doing this series, even though I, I could have chosen anything for this time, right? Three Sundays I can preach on whatever or exhort on whatever. But one of the reasons why I chose this in particular is because we're going, we are in the Christmas season. You have people that are talking about baby Jesus. You have nativity scenes everywhere. But no one's really thinking about what Christ actually did. The fact that there is a baby in that manger proves that there is a sinful humanity that needs to have their sins atoned for. Because if humanity was perfect, that, may, that baby would not be there. The fact that you even have Joseph and Mary caring for a baby who will one day grow up to be the high priest of his people, the atonement for sins of his people, showcases the fact that you have personally sinned against God. And this is why it's so important to take a step back as we're singing Away in a Manger, or Silent Night, Holy Night, or whatever Christmas carol you sing, and think, not only has Christ spoken and has spoken to you, but he's calling you to pay attention to the very thing that he came on earth to do, which is atone for your sins. I don't care if you have an American Express black card, you cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot buy your way into God's good graces. 
There is only one mediator between God and man, and you are not it. Imagine all of the Jews listening to this sermon saying, Wow, what a high priest. This high priest sympathizes with us, and then this high priest also strengthens us. In verse 16, as a result of everything I've just said, the preacher says, let us therefore come timidly to the throne of God. No. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. This is not the throne of judgment. And just because it's not the throne of judgment doesn't mean that we take the work of Christ lightly. But this is Christ's throne, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. This is where Christ is, and now, as he has passed into the heavens, gone through the veil, into the very presence of God, he now turns around and he says, do you remember that cherubim that was guarding the way to the presence of God? I've cleared that. Come. Come. You know, in 2009, I was doing college ministry at a major university with some friends down in Florida. And we had a guy who was an apologist, someone who defends the faith. He's talking about this. And in this college university, some girl with a hoodie, college, you know, all these books around her, she gets up, she raises her hand, and she says, can I say something? So everyone's quiet. And she says, I don't need you to tell me how to get right with God, and I don't need Jesus to mediate between me and God. I can do it myself. There was a pin drop silence in that room. How in the world can you come boldly to the throne of grace without the one who is inviting you? How do you show up into God's presence without being incinerated because by nature you are sinful? There's only one way. And, the, man, and the, the apologist looked at her and he said, Ma'am, Jesus Christ is the only way. And she said, I don't have time for that. And she walked out. Do you? As you exchange gifts tomorrow, as you get together with friends and family, what's on your mind? Yes, it'll be filled with nice pastries and desserts and food and jokes and laughter, but are you paying attention yet? Are you seeing what Christ has done for you? Because from this grounds, all of your joy springs out. This is why you're alive. And this is why you are here today, living, because Christ has set you free. In this life, even this morning, you may see your sins flood the horizon, the horizon and tell you 
you are not worthy to come before the throne of grace like this, like this author is telling you to do. Because I know what you did last night. I know what you did 15 years ago. I know what you did last year. I know all of the sins. And if God gives you a window into your heart, your conscience will tell you, I know what you did. Is there any way to come boldly to the throne of grace? Yes, the invitation stands open. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. For what? So that we may obtain mercy. We just read about that in Micah. Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that time of need is not next year. It's not January 1st, 2024. It's not yesterday. It's, the, it's right now. Moment by moment, you have need of a great high priest. And how foolish, how foolish we would be to deny the very invitation that God has put forward for you to come into the joy of his presence. How foolish. Every single one of us is needy, and this is the Christian life. Depending moment by moment on Christ. When your mother and your father have forsaken you, you come to the, the one who will always take you in, as David says in Psalm 27. When the stress of busyness haunts your soul and threatens to pull you apart so that you are stretched thin, the invitation has come. When your children have stopped speaking to you because you've chosen to take a stand for Christ, the invitation says, come. When your family and your relatives say, I don't deal with all of that stuff, that's for you, I'm glad that you found your truth, no, the, the invitation is not just for you, but it's for them. Come, come to the throne of grace. When Caiaphas, the high priest, stood in the temple the night that Jesus was betrayed, what he didn't realize was that as the high priest, he was standing face to face with the high priest. High priest to high priest. One couldn't make atonement for his own life, but one made atonement for the sins of the world. When Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus into the temple to circumcise him, to offer him to God, and to give their offerings, little did they realize that this was the one who was going to make atonement for their sins. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from bad things. No, from their sins. And for this reason, in Christ, you and I have confidence to come to God because Christ has demonstrated his supremacy as our high priest. I want you to think about Christmas so differently from now on. You're thinking about a God who's made atonement for your sins. You're thinking about a superior high priest, a sympathizing high priest, a strengthening high priest, a priest that they have been waiting for, where Isaiah 25, 9 says, And it will be said in this day, in that day, Behold 
this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I pray that as you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will never see Christmas the same way again. That you will realize that as your prophet, he has spoken to you. This is not for some first century Jews, although they benefited from it. This is for you here in Queens, New York today. He's spoken to you and he's speaking to you now. And he's telling you that he's also your great high priest who made atonement for your sins. He is your great high priest who offered himself willingly to satisfy divine justice for you, to reconcile you to God, and now makes continual intercession for you in the presence of God so that you can live in the very presence of God forever. And this is why we come and let us adore him. This is the reason why. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for our great high priest. Oh, there's so much more to say about our Savior, our high priest. But Lord, whatever was not profitable, I pray that you would blow it away. Whatever is profitable. Drive it deep into our hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen.